passage this morning. We are in a, a sermon series on the book of Esther, which has, I, I was going to say that this is where it gets really exciting this morning, but I realized, like, I literally have been saying that almost every week, right? And so, like, I, even, even more so than when we started this sermon series, I've been kind of blown away myself about how this just, it just kind of keeps on going and hitting, and this, this book is amazing. And so, um, it's going to be really exciting. It's just a different kind of exciting because we're starting to get to the end of the book of Esther. And so, let's go ahead and read Esther chapter seven verses, or sorry, eight verses one through seventeen. So on that day, King Ahasuerus, who we've talked about, is actually also King Xerxes in history, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, remember that is saying, okay, you can come forward, I'm not going to execute you, good news. Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamed, Hamedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write, as you please, with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, and on the third day, on the, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to its, each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their scripts and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. 
And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are several places in your word that seem fantastical because of miracles and supernatural acts of your hand. And then there are some places where the, it is fantastical and hard to believe because of just how cosmic and seismic and scale and scope the history, the history is being shaped by your people and through you, and through your people by you. Lord, this is, um, there's a lot in here that we will have questions about, and I pray, Lord, that you help us to, um, help us to sit to learn to understand where it is that you're coming from and what we can glean from your wisdom and your word. Lord, we thank you um, that you've given us your word, and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So we've seen, and we've kind of talked about and hit in different parts and pieces throughout the time we've been going through Esther, that Esther is this history of God's people in a, a time and place where they have had very little to no political power whatsoever, right? We've, we've, used, we've kind of talked about how God's people are called to respond with hospitality anyway, um, what it means to be a faithful presence. We've talked about what it looks like to have some humility under God's power and not be prideful. That was pride, the pride sermon was last week. Thank you for coming back, right? But now the tables are starting to turn, okay? So God's people through Esther and Mordecai suddenly have a lot of power. To be given the signet ring of the king means you have the king's authority to proclaim any command as if it came from the king, and then he explicitly gives that permission later. So, how do we handle that? Right? Is that a fundamentally different thing that we do? Or do we do the same thing in a different way? What does it look like both for God's people to have a lot and very little or no political power in the midst of society, in the midst of the society that they live in? especially when that society is not in any sense Christian, okay? So we're going to talk about today uh, and, and next Sunday, so the next two Sundays is going to be two kind of parts, like a little mini-series within Esther, on politics for exiles, okay? Politics, what, it, what does it look like for God's people to be engaged in society when the society itself is at best inhospitable and often does not have your best in mind. We'll put it that way. Okay, so this week, we're going to lay a foundation, okay? So a lot of what you read about that you're like, oh, I really have questions about that. Uh, women and children, for real? Uh, next week, you have to come back, okay? So the, 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 the violence and the really, like, ethical problems and challenges, we're going to punt to next week, not because we're going to avoid them, because we're going to go, we're going to talk about nothing but that next week. We're going to talk about them, not talk about them today, because we want to lay a foundation for which next week will make a whole lot more sense. So this week, part one, is going to be God's providence is our peace. And if that is not our assumption, the next week is not going to make any sense. But next week will make more sense because we're going to be talking about God's judgment being our safety. God's judgment being our safety. And so if you're wondering, because this is a term that has been said 
increasingly and is increasingly part of like the American political conversation. Uh, if you have questions about this thing called Christian nationalism, we're going to dig into that next week, okay? But not at the expense of laying a foundation this week, okay? And that's because that's a valid implication of Scripture, not that Christian nationalism, but talking about it. Um, and it's been an implicit question that a few or a handful of you have been asking as we've gone anyway. So, yeah. All that said, let's jump in. And, and before we jump into the text, though, like, let's like even lay a foundation for the foundation. When I say the word providence, what does that mean to you? And we're going to define that. We need to spend a little bit of time here because normally I think most people understand providence as, oh, that's the thing that God does when I pray especially hard and God does something supernatural to change my circumstances, and that's providence. I mean, it, so, so yes, it is, but it's, it's way more than that. It's so much bigger than that. I'm going to use um, a commentator's definition that, that, that I've mentioned her before. Her name is Dr. Karen Jobs. I've got a couple quotes for her that, for, from her this morning. But here's what she says providence is. She says there's three, three facets to it. The first is providence is, number one, God's ongoing personal preservation of the entire universe and all of life within it, okay? Um, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, God created everything, but he doesn't just sing, let it go, right? Come on, I'm just saying for paying attention. That's the closest to being on note I've been since rehearsing that, um, Right? God is not a deistic God. He's not the cosmic watchmaker who created everything and then it's just kind of going on its own steam or its own power and he's not involved anymore. He is actively and very personally sustaining it. This is important because, like I was saying during our confession, all of humanity always is dependent on God even when we are not consciously or intentionally depending on God. That is huge. Second part of this definition of what is providence is that divine concurrence is in human action, okay? What I mean by that is that, and what that is describing is this biblical pattern that human beings are responsible for evil, but God uses the effects of our actions and, and the effects of evil for his good purposes. Some of you are probably very familiar with like where this is most kind of explicitly summarized and stated in scripture um, when the grandson of Abraham named Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers, was falsely accused and then imprisoned, and somehow God used him and brought him out of that so that he would be, honestly, a, a, a very close parallel to Mordecai uh, in terms of being kind of the grand vizier to the king, except to Pharaoh instead of King Ahasuerus. And in that, when his brothers... Uh, who are, are fleeing their home because of a famine, they come to him not realizing it's him, but then when they do, they're like, oh no, the guy that we're like hoping for and depending on our salvation from, we sold into slavery. We're doomed. And Joseph says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, when we talk about divine concurrence and human action, which human actions is God involved in? Is it just the good ones, or is it like the bad stuff too, the wicked and the evil stuff? Well, 
Joseph would say, it's the bad stuff too. Esther implies that God is involved in everything, that every human action God is in some way involved in and or influencing. How? I have no idea. It's just that's what he says. Like, he's actually said that. You see, we, what we want to do is we want to say, well, no, God, we can tell where God's involved because in, in Scripture because that's where the good stuff's happening. And the bad stuff, God's, no, God didn't want that and he didn't do that. Um, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I get it. That, that doesn't feel like good news. But here's why that is incredibly good news. That is, in, if, if God is only involved in the good things that we do for the good reasons, how often will he be involved in human history at all? He won't, okay? We're just grading on a curve when we, when we want that, when we think that that's the case, right? And if so, if he's not involved in our bad attempts, our misguided attempts, even if they're good intentions of loving our neighbors ourselves, will he ever redeem or, or, or rescue our neighbors? No. Will he ever rescue us? No. Stated positively, that means you can't mess it up. If God's involved in anything, then there is no formula, there is no model, there is no vehicle, there is no ministry, there is no program, there is no content, there is no curriculum that God is more or less involved in. He's promised his word will not return void, not only when it's preached well, which is really good news for me, okay? Number three, both of these things, one and two, combined, move history toward a planned, and also because it's God who we're talking about, a good end. In Genesis 45, Joseph also says to his brothers, um, like, don't be, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was for the purpose of, he was sold into slavery, for the purpose of saving lives that God sent me ahead of you. It wasn't you, it was God. Okay? Let's, let's kind of root this a little bit more ordinarily, every day, practically. And like, let's put all these three things together a little bit. Um, a friend of mine, uh, his name's Mike Kanjan, he's a, he's a pastor in Baltimore, he was uh, telling me and some other friends recently um, that the Sunday before, they have a prayer team who is just, it's a man and a woman um, who stand in front after the benediction. If anybody wants prayer, anyone who wants to come up to them, they pray for them and follow up and, and, and you know, exercise some pastoral care. And there's a prayer team that came up uh, the previous Sunday that had never done that before. They had just gone through the training, and, and they had never served together before. They'd never done it before. And the first person who comes up to ask them for prayer is a woman in their church whose son wanted to become a police officer but is dyslexic. And that's a real problem for police officers because you actually write a lot more reports and read a lot more reports than you, than you would think. Um, and this, these two first-time volunteers are, like, starting to just weep because the woman is a teacher at the, uh, the school that, that, church, that their church started, and her role as a teacher is to help 
high school students with learning disabilities, and her specialty is in dyslexia. The man who she was praying with for this woman's son is a Howard County, so their county, county law enforcement officer. They had never met before, okay? That's providence. Providence, I love, I love, John Levinson says this. He says, a coincidence is a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. This prayer team volunteers, they, they chose to volunteer on the prayer team. They just happened to choose to do that. They just happened to be scheduled uh, the same morning together. This mom just coincidentally asked that morning about her son with this impossible challenge, and they just happened to have an entire life story and experience and resume to be uniquely able, the two of them together, but neither of them separately, to help in a very profound way. <laughs> That's providence. Did, did anyone part an ocean? Did anybody raise, was anybody raised from the dead? No. Was it any less, was it any less God doing? No. Do you ever, you ever like... I hate this. This happens to me. Well, I wish it would happen more often, but you ever, you ever have like an like a unexpectedly high tax refund or, uh, or, or like a bonus that you didn't expect or somebody just came out of the blue with a gift and you're like, this is great. And like right as you're just in the midst of like, what are we going to do with this? Like this is great. We can maybe actually go on a vacation and not just visit family because those are not the same. I hope you know that, right? Okay. <laughs> Like, maybe we can, like, upgrade our car or get the nice crib for our newborn. Like, like, and then, right as that's happening, your car breaks down. And you know how much it costs? Exactly the bonus and windfall you just got, right? Or the, your pipes burst in your house. Like, it, it just never fails. And, like, what if we understood that less as the universe being against me and more God preemptively exercising his providence, right? You guys have heard me talk about in my own life and in hindsight, being a child of divorce, Hannah and I struggling with infertility and miscarriage, even suffering under spiritual abuse for two years, all of that God has used providentially in ways that redeem those things and make them actually good things. Like I was at it hit me not too long ago that specifically the spiritual abuse piece, when I, was a first, when I was first a pastor somewhere, I spent two years working for like a narcissist senior pastor, and I, it was absolutely terrible and miserable. I thought, like, I was not in a good place. Before the pandemic, I was maybe grudgingly accepted that as, like, yes, God allowed that to happen. I'm sure he's going to redeem it. I'm like, cool. Awesome. Yeah, great. I'm actually grateful for it now. That's different, right? I'm glad that it happened for a variety of reasons. But that is, it shocked me how much that was the case. Not because, like, I enjoyed it. Uh-uh. That's not, that's not a thing, okay? But I'm starting to understand God's providence, which, you know, it only took me 10 years in ministry and 20 as a Christian, so I'm a slow learner. My point is this, but and, and even then, 
I'm saying that this is in the benefit of of hindsight. This isn't always the case, though, right? Sometimes terrible things happen. We experience just absolute hardship, and there's no good. And even decades later, maybe on this side of heaven, you may never actually see the good that God redeems of it. That doesn't mean it won't be. It, may, it means maybe it won't happen on this side of heaven, or maybe it will happen, but you don't see it, or it's used in a way you're not expecting. But no matter what, we can trust that God's repeated pattern of delivering on his promise to redeem in Scripture means it is guaranteed. Okay. Dr. Karen Jobes, she says that any de- deity, and here's the bottom line, any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then, Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. In other words, hidden providence is no less potent, no less effectual, no less true or of God than his miraculous interventions. They should be seen as equal. And that's what Esther is showing us. Right? So I know the sermon title is Politics for Exiles, and you're like, I'm ready for the red meat. Give it to me. Not yet. And the reason why is, and the reason why we're going here, and I'm talking about this now, is because you need to know what very few people seem to understand or be able to viscerally, emotionally appreciate right now, which is there is nothing on the line here politically. It's important. I don't mean we should be apathetic about what's happening politically in our country or in the world or anything like that. What I'm saying is you can neither move God's plan ahead faster than he intends it to be nor slow it down. And that God is even in the really crappy stuff that happens politically or otherwise or as a consequence of politics downstream. God is as involved in that as he is when you're chosen man or woman candidate is elected. You need to know that as citizens of heaven, you are a part of a greater reality that cannot at all, ever, not even to the smallest of degrees or ways, interrupt or slow down God's plan. And his plan is good. That's important. Now, take this lens for the rest of the sermon, okay? We did, we did a little bit of work here. It's going to go a little quicker, and we're going to dive into the text because God's providence is really starting to culminate in the book of Esther. Like these last few chapters, it starts to be like, oh, that's why all these things are connected. Let me start with verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read this again to refresh your memories. This is Esther before the king. She says, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? This part, it's starting to have kind of like in the, if this were a, a Hollywood movie, we're starting to see like, Uh, decreasing action, but this is actually the climax of the entire book of Esther. Even though the action isn't quite as intense or dramatic, like, we got Haman out of the way last week, so we're good, right? Well, no, because the same thing, the thing has to happen still. The, The evil he started has to be undone. And this 
this question to the king to revoke the letters devised by Haman. This is the question that Esther was originally commanded by Mordecai to go and do in chapter 4. This is the thing that all of the political subterfuge, all of the, the, the games and the hospitality, the subversive hospitality we talked about two Sundays ago, all of that with Haman, all of that is done because this is the thing she was trying to get to. She has this, this desperate urgency, right? She's still identifying with God's people like we talked about several weeks ago. And she's saying, like in a new way, in a fresh way, I won't survive this. Even if I am not in the crosshairs of this persecution, she's saying, I can't live without God's people. By the way, that should be how all of us feel about God's people, the church. This, she is vulnerably expressing a love and an attachment with zero political benefit or motive, right? There's no posturing. There's no, will you come to my banquet along with Haman this week? Like, she's just like, nope, this is it. Here it is, right? With Haman out of the picture, she is even more shockingly vulnerable in putting herself at the mercy of the king. No more games. This is what it's about. Why? Like, what? It's still risky, right? It still says, you know, he lowered his scepter so that she wouldn't be executed. Why is she doing that? I think it's because she's watching God's providence unfold in front of her eyes. I think it's because she isn't actually throwing herself at the mercy of the king. She's throwing herself at the mercy of God. And there she's perfectly safe. This isn't just a question that she was originally asking. It's also the question the book of Esther was written to address, which is this, right? Is God going to be faithful to his people even though they're exiled in Persia? Like, they're not in the promised land. And, and not only that, they're there explicitly because God said, I'm going to allow you to be carried away into exile because you have been seriously unfaithful to me. And so in the midst of that, when their survival is at stake, Esther, the book of Esther, is written to address, is God going to show up? The answer is yes, but in a very amazing way. Again, Dr. Karen Jacob says, without any discernible miracle or any detectable intervention by God, human decisions led to an outcome that God had promised many centuries before. This outcome was not only against all human ex expectation, it was the exact reversal of the expected and intended outcome, specifically of chapter 3, verse 13. Like, this is a reversal. It's, it's worded and phrased, and the way the flow and the organization is, it is all a mirror image of when Haman came before the king to, to, to slaughter all the Jews, right? In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 8, we see this in the rewards that the king gives Mordecai and Esther, like, this is incredible. Haman says, hey, king Xerxes, um, I'm going to pay you $10,000 from all the plunder and the loot from an entire kind of nation within a nation here that I want to destroy. And when we loot their, their possessions and their wealth, we're going to give you 10,000 gold so your treasury is greater. So, like, he's making it hard for the king to say no. I'm like, okay, sure, I, I can profit. God's people were murdered for profit, and now God's people are being rewarded with wealth. Esther and Mordecai as representatives of that. Verses 9 and 10, and also after uh, later, like, <laughs> the, 
all this weird, unnecessary detail about the scribes and the languages that were written in and all the satraps and the governors and the 127 provinces, all of that, especially my favorite is the, oh gosh, where, where is it? The, uh, the horses, right? Bread from the royal stud, like what a detail to include. Um, all of this is a reversal of kind of matter-of-fact details from chapter 3, except there's all this flourish now. It's, it's, it's even more detailed. It's not just matter of fact. It's like it's, it's showing an urgency and a speed. They're racing to deliver this edict. All of that is to communicate that, yes, it's a reversal, but also this one's superior. This iteration is different. It's better. It's fuller. It's complete. In verses 11 and 12, the, right, the, king, the king says that this edict the, the first one cannot be canceled. So write whatever you want. Like, I'm like, I would have gone, I would have said a lot more, I think. I would have included a lot more, like that tax refund we were talking about earlier. Um, like, if you, you said whatever you want. More importantly than my tax refund, uh, this gives God one more opportunity to demonstrate his behind-the-scenes providence. Because it can't just cancel it out that the resolution is kind of punted a little bit further down the road and God's going to have to show up again. Again. Okay. If everything I just said and talked about this, like this reversal, if this, were, if this were it, that'd be enough. Like it's just clear that there's no way any of this can happen without God's hand. But there's something just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole. Um, and I was really struggling to figure, find a word that uh, still sufficiently expressed how insane this, what I'm about to say is, and bonkers is the only word that I came up with, so I'm sorry. If you have a better one, please text it in for the Q&A. Um, but take a look again at verse 5. She says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. To revoke. Right, have your minds blown? The word revoke literally is pass over. Purim, the festival that is celebrated as a result of all of the events of Esther, is to Esther that Passover is to Exodus. And if you're unfamiliar with it, Exodus is when God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and Moses says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no many times. The straw that breaks the camel's back, which I'm really, as I'm saying this, wondering if that's related to Exodus, because it's Egyptian, camels get it, anyway. Um, the straw that breaks the camel's back is, is Passover, where God says to his people, smear the blood of a sacrificed lamb on your door jam overnight and so that the angel of death that I send knows not to go into your home but goes into the Egyptian homes instead and slays the firstborn son. That is what makes Pharaoh finally break and give up God's people and allows Israel to leave. This is not an accident. Both Purim and Passover happen outside of the promised land in Egypt versus Persia. Both tell the story of God rescuing his people in the face of extermination. Moses and Esther both appealed to, the, to kings to rescue God's people. Pharaoh's army and Haman's insurgents both perish. Both celebrate a cosmic reversal against all odds. Here's the one difference, and this is the entire point of Esther. 
One happens through extraordinary, supernatural means. Passover and Exodus. The other in Esther is equally extreme, as significant of a reversal, just as impossible odds, but through ordinary and natural means. This word is Passover because it's not a coincidence. Because Esther's, if you remember Esther's three-day feast that she used to, in preparation to ask this question, guess when that three-day feast started? Passover Eve. Days two and three of that fast that Esther did, and, and along with God's people in Persia, days two and three of that were, day, were the first and second day of Passover. It's the, it's the intention, explicit intention of the author. So God's answer to the question, will you be faithful to, his, to, to your covenant people even though we are exiled in Persia for being unfaithful? What is your answer to that question? And God's answer is, I am no less faithful in the middle of my relationship with you than I was at the beginning of my relationship with you. The answer is yes. Of course I am faithful. And so God's providence is that is actually God being actively faithful to his covenant promises, even and especially when God's people are most undeserving. He's saying that the two events of Passover and Purim are of equal potency and importance, even if you don't see my hand. To tie all this together and to look at the response of God's people, we'll look at how God's providence is our peace, and then we'll go into the Q&A. So if you have a question, Feel free to text that at any time. But we see bookends in, the, in chapter 8. In verses 1 and 2, Mordecai goes from sackcloth and ashes to a royal robe and a royal signet ring. It goes from the, the particular to the general where God's people in verses 15 through 17 go from lament to lightness. I love, when I first started reading through chapter 8, verse 16 just it just leapt off the page because of how it just it, it articulates this emphasis. It says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. It's like the author of Esther was just as hyperbolic and struggling to find the words as I am. And he's just like, well, here's all of the good ones, right? Light and gladness and joy and honor. And frankly, what other response could they have? I mean, like, think about it. God just accomplished... An impossible rescue without a single supernatural act or miracle. Instead, he, he both says, like, like, hold my beer, and ties both hands behind his back, and still uses just complete morons. Right? He uses Mordecai, a, a decrepit, probably like secular exile, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a cultural Christian, like who just likes to come on Easter and Christmas, no judgment, um, He's an exile who chose to remain in pagan Persia rather than return to the promised land like a faithful Jew, like all the rest of the faithful Jews who were going back with Ezra. He uses Esther, his orphan niece, who is kidnapped and forced to compete in some weird, perverted version of real-world Persia. If you don't know what real-world is, it means you were probably born after 1998 or 1988. Um, it's a reality TV show, um, but... But for Esther, beauty and sexual prowess is what makes her the difference between a lifelong queen or a lifelong concubine, either one to a glorified toddler. 
And that glorified toddler, King Xerxes slash Ahasuerus, that same toddler is too blind to see Haman's obvious deceit and corruption, too dumb to find his way out of a wet paper bag, and too hedonistic to take any responsibility for his decisions. And then lastly, who we talked about last week, Haman. God uses Haman and his evil and his wickedness. He's one of the most evil and wicked and arrogant figures in, in Scripture, never mind actually all of human history, and the sum of whose actively malicious efforts and best laid plans was God's very means of rescuing his people from them. Like God's just showing off. And without a single miracle, not one. Heck yes, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. (laughs) And God has provided an even greater rescue for us. And thus, we have an even greater peace in Christ Jesus, of which no election or political development or lack thereof can ever threaten or should ever decrease our peace in. Right? If, if Passover is to Exodus, what Purim is to Esther, Sunday worship is to us in the New Testament era. We don't sacrifice on Saturday at a temple where God is present. We celebrate every Sunday as God's temple among whom he is present. And how could we not? How could we not have lightness and gladness and joy? How could we not? He used 12 of the most unqualified morons to spark a movement that literally changed the world and is still changing the world, right? He used the epitome of human ingenuity leveraged in order to shame, create pain and brokenness in the cross to once and for all change dead people estranged from him into his eternal people and most treasured possession. And now... He's using the second most unqualified group of morons, that's us, welcome, to bring more dead people into life. I'll read that verse again. We have joy, light, and gladness, and joy, and honor. We have light, and gladness, and joy, and honor. We have light, and gladness, and joy, and honor. In God's gracious and unchanging providence, we can't lose. That includes, by the way, even if I give dumb or terrible answers to really good questions. He's going to use that too. So speaking of, let's see who, let's see what questions we have. All right. Okay, this is funny. I read Psalm 23 this week, and it struck me that the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I couldn't stop thinking about how this, how could this be a comfort And this sermon has me wondering how I understand judgment and my own cultural context. How do we untangle our cultural baggage? Well, you're ruining my punchline um, because I have written here, I can show you on my notes, Psalm 23 is is the setup for communion. Okay, so I'm going to do it now, and I don't know what I'm going to say to open up communion, but right, uh, so the slides, if you want to go ahead, cool, way ahead of me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let me pause, actually, before I do this. This is the funeral sermon, or the funeral psalm, right? This is the psalm you read when somebody's dying or about to die or has died, and, and like, it's, it's, it's comforting because it's in the valley of the shadow of death. And like, that's a good use of it. All, our association with that, though, it, I think blinds us to some very real 
providence in it, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me, it's not just human agency, it's also divine sovereignty. He's leading me there. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I have no political power, even though my guy didn't get elected, even though the Capitol was stormed by people who didn't think an election was valid, even though other people think other elections aren't valid on the other side of the aisle, even though like, the world seems to be exploding in Eastern Europe, even though a lot of assumptions that we thought were the case are no longer safe to assume anymore, culturally, socially, politically, or otherwise, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear has no place here. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod, which is a symbol of rebuke, and your staff, which is a symbol of care, comfort me. God, both your rebuke and your care, both your judgment and your providence are comforts to me because who is wielding them? And here's the communion part. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, we can let our guard down and fear no evil, fear no threat to do the most vulnerable thing you could do at the time Psalm 23 is written, which is to eat with your back turned to people wielding swords. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows with what? Shalom, with peace. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, not just the good ones, of my life, regardless of circumstance or power, right? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is nothing that can threaten it, past, present, or future, nothing. So to answer your question, yeah, Psalm 23 is perfect to illustrate the ways in which, and to serve as a mirror to help us see the ways in which we reduce God's providence in ways that reduce our peace. And when we reduce our peace, when we reduce God's providence, we increase our vulnerability to fear because we we don't think that we're at the mercy of God, we're at the mercy of of a king, of someone who's wielding power not for our good. But that literally will... It's not the case. That's why Esther is so beautiful for us. Okay, nobody's sent in any other questions, so just pretend I said that as an intro to communion because communion is not just a symbolic reminder of that piece of Psalm 23 in particular. It's not just like... When we talk about sacraments, we talk about them as signs and symbols. So they're signs in that they represent something, but they are, they are, they are seals in that they actually do something too. Right? They, this, this bread and this wine actually nourishes you and gives you hope and peace when you think you're at the mercy of your circumstances. You're actually not. You're at the mercy of the one who, when he was with his disciples, took bread and broke it, and he says, this is my body, it is broken for you. Your circumstances are going to be broken. You ultimately have no fear of that because I was broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. You cannot be taken away from your citizenship in heaven. 
That cannot be removed from you. You cannot take it. Nobody, nothing, no political decision or otherwise can take you from my hand. There's nothing actually being threatened here. How would you live differently if nothing threatened you? As often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return, he says. That death united nincompoops, broken idiots, hard to, slow to learn, wicked intentions with good actions and good intentions with wicked actions. Doesn't matter. God united them into a family. And now you're identified as part of that family. You can't live without each other. And that's why this is a family meal. We actually celebrate communion family style. So while uh, the musicians are playing, if, if this is your hope, even a little bit, or you want it to be your hope, come on up, and as soon as 10 or 12 are gathered around, we'll take the communion elements together as a family because we are a family centered on Christ and his providence being our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, you're good. We have light and gladness and joy and hope, and it is all because of you. So, Lord, help us to celebrate that light and that joy and that gladness and that hope in the feast of the Lamb that we get to look forward to in this appetizer. But though it is an appetizer, it nourishes us so powerfully. Lord, do that work through your presence among your people, and thank you for your providence, and we pray this in your name.